those are the most exciting meetings when you're sitting with the director, you, the visual effects person, the producer, and you're brainstorming ideas. Because my job as an effects artist is the director wants to paint this beautiful picture. And my job is to provide him with the paint. And the visual effects job is to give him the brush. And the producer job is to give him the canvas. And for me, the most effective are when there's a, there's a harmony between all of the elements to make this beautiful painting. Welcome to There to Here, an educational podcast where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and how they got from there to here. On today's show, Academy and Emmy Award-winning SFX makeup artist Greg Nicotero of K&B FX Group talks blood and gore and his journey to becoming EP and director of The Walking Dead. As this is a new podcast, we're really wanting feedback, so go to media.collabinc.org, fill out the feedback survey, and you'll be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card. Congratulations to this week's winner, Ryan Schultz. And from Collab Inc., I'm Tanya Musgrave, and today we are on Honored to have Greg Nicotero, a special effects makeup legend, producer, and director. He helped form the KB FX group, which has gone on to win both an Academy Award and Emmy for their special effects work. But you might probably know him best as the executive producer and director of The Walking Dead. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very honored to be here. So, makeup artist to EP director, how did you get from there to here? I feel very fortunate. I grew up in Pittsburgh and ultimately ended up living about 45 minutes away from George Romero. George Romero wrote, directed Night of the Living Dead, Dawn uh-huh. of the Dead, Creep yep. Show. So I loved horror movies when I was a kid. You know, my parents were big movie buffs and I would see the scariest, creepiest, most horrific films that I could get my hands on when I was a little kid. But I never really, I never really equated it to like, oh, well, there are actually people in the world that their job is to scare you, whether they're writing the scripts or they're building the special effects or they're directing, whatever, acting in it, whatever it is, there's a team of people behind the scenes and that's their job. And I was really interested in the, the, how they do that of like, Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Like, I loved that there was a makeup artist with cigarette and like brushes, <laughs> probably painting Boris Karloff. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up really fascinated with the idea of like making monsters, but it was always kind of a hobby for me. Like, I never thought, ah, oh, you know, I live in Pittsburgh. Like, how would I ever translate that into a career in special effects or a career in the movies? I never thought about it. Mm. My dad's a, a retired physician and I was going to be a doctor, you know, I mean, that was where I thought that my career path was taking me until one day, just as a, as a fluke, I met George Romero Mm -hmm. and George was a a really nice guy. And of course in Pittsburgh, he was the local legend. He was so nice and so welcoming and he would invite me out to the studio where he was preparing movies. And I was 15 years old and I would go visit and, you know, a couple years later, two years later, they were shooting Creep Show, and I went and visited the set. And he had even said to me, "Oh, you know, if you want a job, let us know. You know, they have these production assistant jobs." And I'm like, "No, no, no. I'm going to go off to uh, college soon, and I'm going to be a doctor." So I said no to my first job offer in the movie business. Cut to like three years later. It's 1984. I'm visiting George for lunch uh, downtown Pittsburgh, and he goes, "Hey, we got a green light to do Day of the Dead," and I'm like, "Hmm." <laughs> like, okay, so I turned down a job offer on Creepshow, and I think between 1981 and 1984, my interest in movies just, just kept building and building and building. And I said, well, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. So 
I accepted the job. I told my folks that I was going to take a semester off of school, work on this movie, and then go back. And I was just going to do it just to sort of get it out of my system. And that was 35 years ago, maybe. I haven't gone back. I, I hate to admit it. But I will say that I was someone who followed my passion. It was something that I loved. It was something I was really interested in. And I didn't even think about the idea that I could turn it into a career. I just loved it so, so much. You know, I started in the business in 1984. I moved out to Los Angeles in 1985. And by 1988, I had my own company, KMBFX Group, which is still around. We're the longest running makeup effects company in the world. And, you know, the last 10 years have taken me in an entirely different direction because after doing the first season of Walking Dead, Frank Darabont and Gail Ann Hurd had reached out and said, listen, you know, you have years and years of experience. You love it more than anybody else we know. And we're doing this zombie show and we need your expertise. And we don't look at you as a makeup effects person alone. We look at you as somebody that can contribute much more to the show. So they made me a consulting producer I was the second unit director, so I was shooting all the gory bits here and there. And the next thing I knew, I was the producing director on the show. I've directed 35 or 36 episodes of the show over the last 10 years. And it's been one of the most unique journeys that I can ever imagine. And it led me to being showrunner on Creep Show. So on the mm -hmm. off season of Walking Dead, I have my own TV show that's based on the movie that I turned the job down mm. uh, in 1980. So I, I, I always joke about like if the 16 year old me was watching this podcast and being <laughs> like, what was he thinking? <laughs> But, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I've been on a, an amazing journey and I've worked with the best filmmakers in the world. And I consider myself uh, the kind of person who's had the greatest film school experience on a movie set ever. I've worked yeah. with Quentin Tarantino, John Carpenter, Robert Rodriguez, yeah. Michael Bay, Wes Craven. Everybody that I admired, everybody that I looked up to, I have had the great opportunity to be in the trenches with them. That's amazing. How was that transition from behind the behind the scenes <laughs> kind of role to like the forefront of running the show? Well, you know, what's interesting about it is when you're designing creature effects, your pedigree is you're collaborating with a lot of different departments. You're visualizing what the director wants. You have to interface with the production designer in case you need specialized sets built. You're working with the director of photography to make sure that your stuff is lit well, that it's edited well, that it's photographed well. So it's different than a lot of other film jobs because mm. you're interacting with a lot of different departments. And in a lot of instances, your job is to realize the director's vision by imagining something starting with a sketch or with a clay sculpture, all the way up to being on set and being responsible for executing it and filming it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of teaches you uh, from the beginning that a lot of makeup effects people have to understand film. They have mm -hmm. to understand the nuts and bolts of it. Kind of a ghost director from the beginning, huh? Well, yeah, and you don't, you never really think about it that way, but you know <laughs> when you work with, you know, like I worked with Sam Raimi and still do quite a bit, and Sam did all the Evil Dead movies, all the Spider-Man movies, and, you know, Sam was an incredibly 
imaginative director because he would storyboard every single frame. And so when we did Army of Darkness, there was literally a book that thick of every single frame. Yeah. So working with him, you realize you have to pre-visualize where the camera's going to be. Then you work with directors like Quentin Tarantino who will spend three weeks with actors rehearsing. And it's so much an actor's medium because Quentin loves working with his actors. So he'll rehearse something. You can't go to Quentin and say, hey, where's the camera going to be when you shoot that scene? Because it's a very organic process. Mm -hmm. Then you'll work with someone like Robert Rodriguez, who really pioneered the idea of shooting movies on green screen in Sin City and then sort of compositing everything together. So what I've been able to do through my career was take little bits and pieces of each one of these kinds of filmmakers, develop my own style and my own understanding of how to shoot movies and TV shows. The greatest thing about it is I still feel like I have so much to learn and every day is a new challenge. And that's really a lot of fun. I still have fun doing it. It, it's interesting that you said that you were prepared to go to med school. And I, I don't know if you were already in med school or if that was kind of where your trajectory was headed. But, you know, your attention to detail, that's kind of like the scientific side of the artistic side of like, you know, anatomy and everything that you've got to, you know, you've got to have. It's funny because when I did Day of the Dead, which was my first job, that came into play quite a bit because there was a scene where a guy gets bit in the arm by a zombie and then they chop his arm off and they cauterize the the stump of his, all this stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. called me to set. George Romero called me to set and said, hey, I got a question. So if we cut the arm off here, and I said, well, you got to tie it off because there's some pretty big arteries there. And ironically, my education, my pre-med, because I never made it to med school because I was taking my entrance exams when yeah. I got off the job on Day of the Dead. But one of the movies that kind of put K&B on the map in its infancy, it was like our first year in business, was a film called Gross Anatomy. It was a Disney movie about medical school students. <laughs> So I went into the meeting and I I had been recommended to the producer, Deborah Hill, by George Romero. And as soon as they found out that I had anatomy training because I had been in college, that's how we got that job. And ironically, the detail that we were able to put into these cadavers that Daphne Zuniga and Matthew Modine were dissecting in the movie, our next big job opportunity was a film called Dances with Wolves. And when Kevin Costner saw the cadavers we made, they're like, well, we need to make buffalo that look like they've been skinned. So ironically, part of my pre-med history actually helped us get jobs that we normally may not have gotten Mm. because of the fact that I had some understanding and knowledge of it. I mean, you have to have a, a an attention to detail, but I mean, what good is attention to detail if it's not actually accurate? <laughs> well, and ironically enough, there's a movie called Freaked that was like Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves. They did this movie with all these kind of weird, wacky, mutated characters. And we interviewed for the job and the director was like, your stuff's too real looking. <laughs> We're looking for something a little less realistic and a little more cartoon a little more exaggerated. And I remember thinking about that going, well, if you think about the fact that our jobs required us to duplicate the reality of a skinned buffalo or the reality of a corpse or a cadaver, we're competent to do whatever task is put in front of us. But 
we ended up spending a lot of our career recreating fake animals because, you know, everyone, oh, they did Dance of the Wolves and City Slickers, and so mm-hmm. we should, they should make fake animals. But we were lucky enough that we did a little bit of everything, and that helped uh, our career because we didn't get pigeonholed into just doing gore stuff, which is what a lot of other movies were, were happening at, in the late 80s and early 90s, mm-hmm. the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, the Halloween franchise, those were a lot more gore effects. But mm-hmm. we were able to, out of the gate, really jump in with movies like City Slickers and Sibling Rivalry. And we were able to broaden our horizons right out of the gate. So you had been able to study under Tom Savini, right? Yes. This was even before he established his SFX makeup school. It must have been an amazing treat to be able to do that. And I guess it may seem like there are always, like today, there are always programs for that now. Like there's a school for this and there's a school for that. Um, So that kind of old school golden age apprenticeship is kind of, kind of faded away. So say that someone who isn't able to attend a school like that, um, but has the talent to garnish everything they can from YouTube or what have you, where could they go as a starting block to actually get started in the industry? Because like for film in general, a degree could mean nothing against actual raw talent. So um, say they've got the talent, but they are not sure where to go. Well, you know, there, there are apprenticeships and internships that are still available. Actually, during now with the state of the world it's a little <laughs> yes. trickier unfortunately yeah but you know on walking dead in the past we did do apprenticeships with people that were going to the savannah art center and you know a lot of times you do have people that that can start you know i start kind of like doing production assistant work mm-hmm. but you know we've had some people at, at the studio here at k and b that were interns. But, you know, with our field, it's a little more specialized. So you have to have some knowledge and understanding of, you know, like latex and the materials and the paints and the clay. It's not as easy as like, oh, I want to do that and I want to go apprentice there. So it's a little more difficult here in the shop. You know, we've partnered with a couple of makeup schools and allowed some of their students to come and work here for credit. And like I said, I'm walking dead. There's been a lot of instances where people would come and they'd work in, you know, the camera department for a couple of days and then the grip department and then the sound department and makeup effects. And they get a chance to experience filmmaking as a whole. And I think that's really important and, and certainly educational. You know, when I was growing up, there was new, no YouTube. So you couldn't just watch what you wanted to watch on the internet. Probably like from 1977 to like 1990, special effects makeup was in its kind of heyday. You know, you had Rick Baker and Stan Winston and Rob Bottin and Tom Savini, these guys that were changing the landscape of special effects with American Werewolf in London and The Thing. And so makeup effects guys were like rock stars. They had marquee value, just like the actors did. And if you look at a movie like Friday the 13th or Dawn of the Dead, Tom Savini's work in those movies is probably as recognizable as any of the actors or even more recognizable as any of the actors that were in those movies so we entered this world where there was a there was such a cool vibe about you know like people that got into special effects and you know back then they were all a little nerdy and a little kind of like maybe not necessarily outgoing and now of course that's the way the world is that's everybody (laughs) embraces People looked at me like I was a little off when I would talk about horror movies. Now that's kind of the way the world is. It's sort of like, oh, good. It's nice to know that everybody sort of caught up to 
the shit that we love, you know? (laughs) So along those lines with kind of learning, this is, you mentioned in an interview once, I remember you said that teeth were a challenge and like details such as like a pink tongue or a white teeth getting gritted up with like black cake icing and stuff like that. So you guys are really, really down on the details. Like anybody who's a makeup artist has to be a, a detail person. So my question is, is there any particular detail that you look for actually in a makeup artist, little things that they might do, like the equivalent of vacuuming under a rug or something that clue you in that they're one to watch that, Hey, this one's a, this one's a good egg. We need to keep our eye on them. Probably the hardest aspect of being a makeup artist is matching the skin tones. If you look at Amadeus, you know, which Dick Smith did this brilliant old age makeup on F F Murray Abraham. Part of what it's about is you create these pieces and then the performers have to bring them to life, but it has to look natural and you can't, it can't take you out of the movie. And it's and it's really, really an art form. You know, even if you if you look at the movie Bombshell and you look at Charlize Theron, yes, you don't even know that it's her. Yes, because it's such a, a brilliantly subtle exercise in makeup. You know, I mean, Gary Oldman when he played Winston Churchill. You know, as makeup artists, we tend to look for like, ooh, where's the edge, and why does this look look different and Really, that is, you know, the application and getting rid of the seams is one thing, but the coloring really just takes a whole other level of understanding of painting. And with a lot of makeup artists, when you look at their portfolios or you look at their work and you study it, trying to figure out like how they did it, that to me is what I look for, uh, is really just that ability to replicate something that people see every single day walking down the street. If you see an old age makeup, you see like the liver spots and you see the wrinkles. You're always looking at that. And we tend to, as makeup artists, we tend to look at people differently because we look at the color of their skin and we look at their wrinkles and we look at the way their hair is. And you always file that stuff away so that when you get a call for an old age makeup, you're like, oh my God, I saw this guy in the street once. And man, you have the coolest face. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying before with like Bombshell and with uh, Churchill, it's almost harder. I I don't know. As As a monster, you can kind of rough it up. Yeah. Absolutely. And kind of hide a multitude of sins. <laughs> Whereas when you're actually doing a, you know, a clean face, it's a lot more difficult. So you mentioned in an interview that, uh, that, that you did want to get to the point of baffling an audience. Like, how do they do that? What is your Everest or your unicorn if you have one in that regard? Like you've done zombies, you've done monsters, you've done real people's faces like the prosthetics and stuff and Hitchcock. And like, is there an ultimate challenge that you do want to tackle? Like, does it even exist even outside of film? The beauty of being in the film industry is that every movie gives you a new set of challenges. On Walking Dead, it was the challenges were like, okay, well, you know, we're going to shoot in a TV schedule. So you have eight days in the heat in Georgia. So you got to worry about people sweating and touching up their makeups and all this kind of stuff. I feel really fortunate that that I've been able to work with the filmmakers that I have and I've been able to work on the projects that I've worked on. So for me, it's just if we revisit an alien or we revisit a zombie or we revisit a werewolf or something, it's almost like taking everything that you've learned from previous experiences and making them even better the next time. You know, I mean, we're developing a lot of stuff right now for Walking Dead that takes into account the fact that we're now dealing with 
a virus that can be transmitted very easily. So a lot of what we've been talking about for the upcoming seasons of The Walking Dead is how to maintain the visual aesthetic of the show, but also keep in mind that we have to put safety uh, for all the performers and the makeup artists first. So we're developing background masks and we're developing makeups that we can speed up the process so that you're in contact with them less, but that you're still maintaining everything that we've done on the show. And it's challenging. And I've embraced this time to really think outside of the box and be more creative about how we're dealing with these day-to-day problems and working with the network. And it really has been interesting because we're coming up with ideas and processes that we necessarily wouldn't have even thought of if we wouldn't be in the situation. So mm-hmm. it's been really interesting to sort of reevaluate what we do and try to come up with methods that, that work better for a production. Do you think it's feasible, particularly in the environment right now with having something like The Walking Dead that has so many people in makeup um, and then you have potential white paper that's coming across everybody's desk saying, okay, only one person in the makeup trailer at once, (laughs) you know, like that kind of thing. Do you think it's feasible? Not only is it feasible, we've already done it. We've already tested it. We've already uh, run it, run it through its paces. And not only can it be done, but we found that some of these modifications are even more efficient than what we were doing before. So in a lot of ways, we've taken these challenges and made our jobs, I'm not going to say easier because I feel like once we start filming and you're on set with the protocols that you have to put in place, that will slow production down. So my Mm -hmm. job has been like, okay, well, we got to find a way to make sure that our part of this production moves not only smoothly, but is more efficient. And it has been, and we've we've done a bunch of tests, and it's been pretty exciting. That is really exciting because there's a good amount of people, including makeup artists, who are very scared about this this upcoming stage that we're in because they're saying, you know, our jobs are all going to be cut in half. You know, we're not going to be allowed to do this. And so I'm curious if whatever techniques that you guys are coming up with, is that going to be released? Is that going to be something that is under the guise of K&BFX where people well, will... Well, I think everybody's working on their own protocols that, mm-hmm. that suit their particular projects. Mm-hmm. You know, Walking Dead is by far the most makeup intensive television show on the air right now because every single episode, there's hundreds and hundreds of characters in makeup. So we have been dealing with that aspect of it because that's how it applies to us. You know, a lot of the other shows that are on the air right now, they have a lot. I mean, probably Star Trek has a, a good number of makeups. They're, it's sort of suited to every single individual production Yeah. because we have volume. And I think that's the one thing that we were dealing with. So I think every single show is going to have to adapt differently. And, you know, I would imagine that, you know, once you get past 20, 20 or 30 extras, they're just going to start handing them over to visual effects because it's pretty easy to put crowds of people, crowds of zombies, crowds of extras into shots um, and not have to bring in the extra makeup people, the extra costumers, the extras themselves. So I know uh, all of this kind of stuff is all being discussed over and over again. And Okay, so back in the 90s, there was a bit of a scare, you know, like after Jurassic Park, they're just like, oh, all these practical effects, they're, they're going to go digital. 
So you use a blend of puppetry and animatronics layered with your gore. Like it's a continued finessing and perfection of like old school tactics. But now as a producer yourself, you're aware of cost analysis of things. And like these days, of course, with the COVID factor, with like the new school digital effects and character animation, are there any aspects of your job that you're afraid will go away? No, I think probably big giant crowds of like 400 people will probably go away. But honestly, when you have a day where you have to turn 400 people into zombies, it's really not fun. Because you you got everybody sweaty and they take their masks off in between set. You have the close-up people and, you know, it's a challenge. So I feel like, you know, filmmaking is going to change and filmmaking is going to evolve as it always has. You know, one of the fascinating scenarios to come up is these big LED screens, you know? I mean, I've been on a couple shows where they've used a Mandalorian, used them to sort of get the interactive light. It's really a unique experience to see those things working and think about the fact that, oh, they, they've taken the whole green screen aspect of it away. Now they're doing it live. You know, there was a little process that we shot in years ago called IntraVision, which was very similar, which is basically they would shoot the background plates and project them onto a screen and then they would build the sets and they would do it in front of the screen. So the LED screens are like sort of that technology just just updated, of course. Mm. But, you know, there's been lots of unique advances and I think that those advances will continue because you have to take into consideration, you know, that if you can build another world on stage and not have to fly to Hawaii to shoot Jurassic Park movie, that people are going to take advantage of those scenarios because of the fact that, that they don't have to go outside. They can be in a controlled environment. We actually have some listener questions from our Insta and Facebook stories and Twitter. If you want to ask your questions to future guests, our handle on Insta and Twitter is Collabing Podcast. So who gets to make the call on whether an effect will be SFX makeup or CGI? And what does that breakdown process look like of going down through script breakdown and saying this or, you know, this one's going to be CGI or this one's SFX? Those are the most exciting meetings when you're sitting with the director, you, the visual effects person, the producer, and you're brainstorming ideas because my job as an effects artist is the director wants to paint this beautiful picture. And my job is to provide him with the paint. And the visual effects job is to give him the brush. And the producer's job is to give him the canvas. And for me, the most effective are when there's a, there's a harmony between all of the elements to make this beautiful painting. We start sort of brainstorming about like, oh, well, if you need a dinosaur to walk across the room, then that's not something that can be easily created a 60-foot dinosaur. But if you need a close-up of a big dinosaur head that actors can interact with, then we can do that. A lot of times, like Walking Dead's a good example because we had a, a digital lion named Shiva that was Ezekiel's pet. When we started developing the character, I had basically said, well, guys, listen, it's going to be important that the actors are not just acting to a gray ball on set or a little, you know, circle with a lion face on it. I said, I think that it's going to be important and the actors will perform better if they have something to perform with. So we built a standing version of this tiger and a lying down version of this tiger. And we had puppeteers throughout the takes that were making the lion breathe, that were moving the head around. And 
it really contributed to a better scene. The actors would come to me later and be like, oh my God, that was unbelievable. And I loved that I had something that I could react to. When we got into post, you know, some of the hero shots of the tiger were digital. And a lot of people were like, well, how did you feel about the fact that there were digital shots and practical shots? I said, guys, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It, what matters is, is that we created a convincing effect uh, right. and we used both techniques. Ultimately, you have, to, you have to understand, like there were shots that I had directed where the tiger was in the foreground and the camera was over his head. So that tiger's head was moving around and Ezekiel was here and Rick was in the background and we had the hair and we had the thing breathing and it looked fantastic. And you have to understand that your contribution to any piece of film is to make sure that it tells the story. And the creation of that tiger for me, was very exciting because we were able to make the storytelling better. And we worked in conjunction with visual effects in terms of designing the color of the fur and the stripes and how big the tiger was going to be, all these different things. You know, the beauty of visual effects is you can change things or you can alter things. And, you know, like if a zombie bites a person's face and the blood squirts this way, but you're like, oh, I really wanted the blood to squirt that way. They can add a little augmentation you know they can add a little squirt for you i would say on our show a lot of the work that is actually done is removing like oh there was a light stand in the shot or a car drove by in the background (laughs) or one camera didn't notice that there were people sitting in the background of the shot like there's a lot of digital fixes that are done where it's like oh you got to paint that guy out of the shot that kind of stuff you couldn't have done you would have had to throw that shot away so I would say a lot of the work that we do on The Walking Dead is augmenting things. Mm. And, you know, liquid is very challenging to duplicate. So we'll, we'll sit on set and we'll spray blood in different directions. And then they'll take that and they'll comp it onto a zombie's head exploding. But even in the 10 years that the show has been on, visual effects has just gotten simpler and better uh, makeup has gotten simpler, not simpler, but but better, and our techniques have gotten better. Oh, there was a, a rather controversial episode of The Walking Dead where Negan was introduced, and Negan killed two lead characters, Stephen Young and Michael Cudlitz. Right. And I directed the episode. And for me, one of the hardest things was, you know, I loved those actors. I hated to see them go. But in the comic book, it was pretty brutal and pretty horrific. So we did this prosthetic, and we had the eyeball that looks like the eyeballs popping out. So when we we actually finished the episode, visual effects went in, and they bulged the eye, and they moved the eye a little bit after the impact. Now, that's something that we wouldn't have been able to do, but just that little... That little augmentation makes a big difference. So it's really critical that you're part of this team, your visual effects team and the makeup effects team. And, you know, for me, because I'm also a director and a producer, I embrace that spirit of collaboration. And yeah. honestly, of everything that's going on in, in the world and in, in film right now, the one thing that we got to make sure that we don't lose is that spirit of collaboration. Because if you're going to have less Absolutely. on set, the idea of being able to collaborate with your with your key people, your director of photography and your costume designer and your production designer and your actors, that's going to be harder to do. And 
that to me is the thing that I'm most determined to preserve because there's been times when you're on set and somebody will go, hey, what if you did that? Like, oh my God, that's an amazing idea. (laughs) I worked on a movie, I mentioned it earlier with Robert Rodriguez in 2004 called Sin City. It was really a great opportunity for us to create a lot of different character makeups. You know, we had Mickey Rourke's character as Marv and Benicio Del Toro and Nick Stahl and um, a lot of real Clive Owen. We had a lot of really great actors that we got to work with. And I was really proud of that. I was really proud of that movie. I was proud of the makeups and the character designs. And I think all the actors really sort of elevated what we did. So that's, to me, that was without a doubt, one of the highlights in my career, just being able to be a part of something like that. You know, I mean, Walking Dead's been fantastic, but I'm still in the middle of it. So I can't like look back and go, oh, Walking Dead was kind of cool because there's a lot more, there's a lot more coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you had mentioned something. I mean, Sin City is just such a unique uh, aesthetic as well. So I mean, I imagine that it would be quite a, an awesome challenge. I remember you said something about using milk for blood. Yeah. Yeah, because of the viscosity of it, it wasn't as transparent. And, you know, the interesting thing about that was you could be shooting Bruce Willis one day on green screen, and then like three days later, Jessica Alba would show up. And then a week later, Mickey Rourke would show up. And when you, that movie really was so, like you said, it was so stylized. And it really was one of the first times that I felt that it captured the spirit of a, a living graphic novel. I just am very proud of that movie. <laughs> Okay, next question. How has your background influenced your approach to directing actors? Great question. The first thing that's critical that you have to establish with your actors is trust. Actors have to trust you. You know, you're probably going to disagree with them at some point. They might have a, an idea that you don't love and you got to talk them into it, or they might have a great idea and you got to sort of, you know, incorporate it in there. It's that collaboration. On Walking Dead, for me, what was interesting was the actors, because they had seen what I had contributed to the show as a makeup artist, when it came time for me to direct, they all literally huddled around me and they protected me. You know, Andy, Andy Lincoln, Jeffrey DeMunn, Sarah Callies, John Bernthal, all the actors really, they wanted to see me survive and succeed. That was a great lesson. I think the most interesting aspect of that is Once I had directed, I had a completely new understanding of how to deal with other directors in terms of pitching ideas for makeup effects. We had gone right on to do Dango Unchained after I had directed my first episode of Walking Dead. And I spent a lot of time on set with Quentin talking about like he wanted to know what my experience directing was like. He was very curious. Yeah. And one of the biggest things I took away from that is the directors want to hear your vision of something, you know, like Quentin, I couldn't go to Quentin and say, Hey, we're shooting the scene in six months. Where do you, what do you want to see for that scene? What I ended up doing was I ended up imagining, okay, if I was shooting the scene, what elements would I need to accomplish this particular scene? And I would build those elements. So when we, when it came time to shooting specific scenes on Django Unchained, Quentin would come by the shop and I would talk him through the elements that we had built. And he was like, how did you know that I would need this? (laughs) Well, I put myself in your shoes and imagined where the camera would be. I imagined what elements that you would need to accomplish what you wrote on the, on the page. Mm. So I feel like 
having been able to be a director makes me a better makeup artist because I can understand what needs to be built and present it to the directors uh, in a way that allows them the freedom to shoot what they want to shoot. Do you think that someone has to value career over relationships to get to the top of the industry? Oh, boy. You know, I... That's that's the age-old question. I mean, it really is. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, Walking Dead has, has kept me away from my family for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I still, to this day, feel a lot of sadness that there were things that I missed being with my children. But, you know, the truth of the matter is I feel like I've been able to give them a better life by sometimes having to be away from them. You know, I mean, I traveled back and forth to Georgia 8,000 times in the last nine years. But, you know, relationships are relationships. And, you know, the people in your life that understand that, that everybody has to make sacrifices, those relationships, those people that are in your life that understand that, they'll always be in your life. A career is something that continues to evolve and continues to change. And I'm at a point now where I've been able to say, guys, I need to go home and be with my wife and my kids for a while. I need that time. So, you know, it's always a delicate balance and it's always challenging. But, you know, the truth of the matter is the people that are in your life that love you, that care about you and the relationships that mean something, they understand that, that unfortunately we're not in a career where you get up at eight o'clock and you go to work nine to five, you know, mm-hmm. that this career takes you all over the world. And I consider myself lucky that I've been able to share that with my children. And I have photos of my kids when they were three years old on the set of The Walking Dead, and now they're 15 Mm -hmm. uh, and 18. And they have a memory and they have something that they would have never had. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. What question should I have asked you? I don't know. You did pretty well. (laughs) You, You did pretty well. Creepshow is something that I'm really proud of because it gave me the opportunity to be the showrunner, to, to collaborate with, with writers, collaborate with directors, collaborate with actors, and continue this tradition of storytelling that, w- that, that was very near and dear to me because of my relationship with George Romero. Mm. So, you know, we're about to, knock on wood, start shooting season two in the next couple of weeks. We were one day away from filming, and we got shut down. Uh, in developing scripts for season three, and you know, I've written, I've written a couple scripts, and again, like I was saying earlier, the idea that I get to continually grow as a, as an artist and as a filmmaker is something that, you know, at at fifty seven years old, you would think like, oh, he's done it all, and you know, I mean, like, are are you slowing down at any point? I'm like, I don't see it. I've been writing all day today because we're putting, you know, we're developing stories for season three of Creepshow and working with writers and, you know, like they'll send you a, a, an outline and then you read it and then you start sort of brainstorming. Well, what happens if this happened? Oh my God, what if the alien does, you know, and then you get into this really fun groove of just imagining these, these make-believe worlds and collaborating with people that 
inspire you. I love that. And I'm and I'm inspired by every single person that I work with. Yeah, it's a good thing to hope for when you are able to combine everything creative and everything personal, like what you were saying before. Greg, thank you so much for, for joining us. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and check out more episodes at media.collabinc.org. If you have comments or know someone who would be a great guest on our show, send in your suggestions to tanya at collabinc.org. And Greg, thanks again so much for your time. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on There to Hear.